Welcome to Frig Friday, featuring Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter, read by Michelle Hammond, sponsored by Gal's Guide. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset Winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature Book One The Wreath Part One Jorengard Chapter Two Every summer, Lovrens Bjorgelsen would ride off to the south to see his estate at Folo. These journeys of her father were like yearly mileposts in Kristen's life. Those long weeks of his absence, and then the great joy when he returned home with wonderful gifts. Cloth from abroad for her bridal chest, figs, raisins, and gingerbread from Oslo, and many strange things to tell her. But this year, Kristen noticed that there was something out of the ordinary about her father's trip. It was postponed again and again. The old men from Lopsgard came riding over unexpectedly and sat at the table with her father and mother, talking about inheritances and alloidial property, repurchasing rights and the difficulties of running a manor from a distance, and about the episcopal seat and the king's castle in Oslo, which took so many of the workers away from the farms in the neighboring areas. The old men had no time to play with Kristen, and she was sent out to the cookhouse to the maids. Her uncle, Trond Ivarsson of Sundbu, also came to visit them more often than usual, but he had never been in the habit of teasing or playing with Kristen. Gradually, she began to understand what it was all about. Ever since he had come to Seal, her father had sought to acquire land there in the village, and now Sir Andres Gudmundsson had offered to exchange Formo, which was his mother's ancestral estate, for Skog, which lay closer to him, since he was one of the king's retainers and seldom came to the valley. Lovrens was loath to part with Skog, which was his ancestral farm. It had come into his family as a gift from the king, and yet the exchange would be advantageous to him in many ways. But Lovrens' brother, Osmund Bjorgelsen was also interested in acquiring Skog. He was now living in Hadeland, where he had a manor that he had obtained through marriage, and it was uncertain whether Osmund would relinquish his ancestral property rights. But one day Lovrens told Ronfrid that this year he wanted to take Kristen along with him to Skog. She should at least see the estate where she had been born and the home of his forefathers if it was going to pass out of their possession. Ronfrid thought this a reasonable request, even though she was a little uneasy about sending so young a child on such a long journey when she was not going along herself. During the first days after Kristen had seen the elf maiden, she was so fearful that she kept close to her mother. She was even frightened by the mere sight of any of the servants who had been up on the mountain that day and who knew what had happened to her. She was glad that her father had forbidden anyone to mention it. But after some time had passed, she thought that she would have liked to talk about it. In her own mind, she told someone about it. She wasn't sure who. And the strange thing was that the more time that passed, the better she seemed to remember it, and the clearer her memory was of the fair woman. But the strangest thing of all 
was that every time she thought about the elf maiden, she would feel such a yearning to travel to Skog, and she grew more and more afraid that her father would refuse to take her. Finally, one morning she woke up in the loft above the storeroom and saw that old Gunhild and her mother were sitting on the doorstep looking through Lavren's bundle of squirrel skins. Gunhild was a widow who went from farm to farm sewing furs into capes and other garments. Kristen gathered from their conversation that now she was to be the one who was to have a new cloak lined with squirrel skins and trimmed with marten. Then she realized that she was going to accompany her father, and she jumped out of bed with a cry of joy. Her mother came over to her and caressed her cheek. Are you so happy then, my daughter, to be going so far away from me? Ranfred said the same thing on the morning of their departure from Jorengard. They were up before dawn. It was dark outside, and a thick mist was drifting between the buildings when Kristen peeked out the door at the weather. It billowed like gray smoke around the lanterns and in front of the open doorways. Servants ran back and forth from the stables to the storehouses, and the women came from the cookhouse with steaming pots of porridge and trenchers of boiled meat and pork. They would have a good meal of hearty food before they set off in the cold of the morning. Indoors, the leather bags with their traveling goods were opened up again, and forgotten items were placed inside. Ronfred reminded her husband of all the things he was supposed to tend to for her, and she talked about kinsmen and acquaintances who lived along the way. He must give a certain person her greetings, and he must not forget to ask after someone else she mentioned. Kristen ran in and out, saying goodbye many times to everyone in the house, unable to sit still anywhere. Are you so happy then, Kristen, to be going so far away from me and for such a long time? asked her mother. Kristen felt both sad and crestfallen, and she wished that her mother had not said such a thing, but she replied as best she could. No, dear mother, but I'm happy to be going with my father. I suppose you are, said Ronfred with a sigh. Then she kissed the child and fussed with the maiden's clothes a bit. At last they sat in the saddles, everyone who was to accompany them on the journey. Kristen was riding Morvan, the horse that had once been her father's. He was old, wise, and steady. Ronfred handed the silver goblet with one last fortifying drink to her husband, placed a hand on her daughter's knee, and told her to remember everything that she had impressed upon her. Then they rode out of the courtyard into the gray dawn. The fog hovered as white as milk over the village. But in a while it began to disperse, and then the sun seeped through. Dripping with dew and green, with the second crop of hay, the pastures shimmered in the white haze, along with pale stubble fields and yellow trees and mountain ash with glittering red berries. The blue of the mountainsides was dimly visible, rising up out of the mist and steam. Then the fog broke and drifted in wisps among the grassy slopes, and they rode down through the valley in the most glorious sunshine. Kristen foremost in the group at her father's side. They arrived in Hamar on a dark and rainy evening. Kristen was sitting in front on her father's saddle, for she was so tired that everything swam before her eyes. The lake gleaming palely off to the right, the dark trees dripping moisture on them as they rode underneath, 
and the somber black clusters of buildings in the colorless, wet fields along the road. She had stopped counting the days. It seemed to her that she had been on this long journey forever. They had visited family and friends who lived along the valley. She had gotten to know children on the large manors. She had played in unfamiliar houses and barns and courtyards, and she had worn her red dress with the silk sleeves many times. They had rested along the side of the road in the daytime when it was good weather. Arna had gathered nuts for her, and after their meals she had been allowed to sleep on top of the leather bags containing their clothes. At one estate they had been given silk-covered pillows in their beds. On another night they had slept in a roadside hostel, and whenever Kristen woke up she could hear a woman weeping softly and full of despair in one of the other beds. But every night she had slept snugly against her father's broad, warm back. Kristen woke up with a start. She didn't know where she was, but the odd ringing and droning sound she had heard in her dreams continued. She was lying alone in a bed, and in the room where it stood a fire was burning in the hearth. She called to her father, and he rose from the hearth where he was sitting and came over to her, accompanied by a heavy-set woman. Where are we? she asked. Lovrens laughed and said, We're in Hamar now, and this is Margaret, Shoemaker Fartine's wife. You must greet her nicely, for you were asleep when we arrived, but now Margaret will help you get dressed. Is it morning? asked Kristen. I thought you would be coming to bed now. Can't you help me instead? she begged. But Lovrens replied rather sternly that she should thank Margaret for her willingness to help. And look at the present she has for you. It was a pair of red shoes with silk straps. The woman smiled at Kristen's joyful face and then helped her put on her shift and stockings in bed so she wouldn't have to step barefoot onto the dirt floor. What's making that sound? asked Kristen. Like a church bell, but so many of them. Those are our bells, laughed Margaret. Haven't you heard about the great cathedral here in town? That's where you're going now. That's where the big bell is ringing. And bells are ringing at the cloister, and in the Church of the Cross, too. Margaret spread a thick layer of butter on Kristen's bread and put honey in her milk so that the food would be more filling. She had so little time to eat. Outside it was still dark and frost had set in. The mist was so cold that it bit into her skin. The footpaths made by people and cattle and horses were as hard as cast iron, so that Kristen's feet hurt in her thin new shoes. In one place she stepped through the ice into a rut in the middle of the narrow street, which made her legs wet and cold. Then Lavrens lifted her up on his back and carried her. She peered into the darkness, but there was little she could see of the town. She glimpsed the black gables of houses and trees outlined against the gray sky. Then they reached a small meadow that glittered with rime, and on the other side of the meadow she could make out a pale gray building as huge as a mountain. There were large stone buildings surrounding it, and here and there a light shone through peepholes in the wall. The bells, which had been silent for a while, started ringing again, and now the sound was so powerful that it made icy shivers run down her spine. It was like entering the mountain, thought Kristen, as they stepped inside the vestibule of the church. They were met by darkness and cold. 
They went through a doorway, and there they encountered the chill smell of old incense and candles. Kristen was in a dark and vast room with a high ceiling. Her eyes couldn't penetrate the darkness, neither overhead nor to the sides, but a light was burning on an altar far in front of them. A priest was standing there, and the echo of his voice crept oddly around the room, like puffs of air and whispers. Lovrens crossed himself and his child with holy water, and then walked forward. Even though he stepped cautiously, his spurs rang loudly against the stone floor. They passed giant pillars, and looking between the pillars was like peering into coal-black holes. Up front, near the altar, Lovrens knelt down, and Kristen knelt at his side. Her eyes began adjusting to the dark. Gold and silver gleamed from altars between the pillars, but on the altar before them, candles were glowing in gilded candlesticks, and the holy vessels shone, as did the great, magnificent paintings behind. Kristen again thought of the mountain. This is the way she had imagined it must be inside. So much splendor, but perhaps even more light, and the dwarf maiden's face appeared before her. But then she raised her eyes and saw above the painting the figure of Christ himself, huge and stern, lifted high up on the cross. She was frightened. He didn't look gentle and sad as he did back home in their own warm brown timbered church, where he hung heavily from his arms, his feet and hands pierced through, and his blood-spattered head bowed beneath the crown of thorns. Here he stood on a step, his arms rigidly outstretched and his head erect. His hair was gleaming gold and adorned with a golden crown. His face was lifted upward with a harsh expression. Then Kristen tried to follow the priest's words as he prayed and sang, but his speech was so rapid and indistinct. At home she was able to distinguish each word, for Sarah Eirik had the clearest voice, and he had taught her what the holy words meant in Norwegian so that she could better keep her thoughts on God when she was in church. But she couldn't do that here, for she was constantly noticing things in the dark. There were windows high up on the wall, and they began to grow lighter with the day, and near the place where they were kneeling, a strange gallows-like structure of wood had been raised. Beyond it lay light-colored blocks of stone, and troughs and tools lay there, too. Then she could hear that people had arrived and were padding around in there. Her eyes fell once more on the stern Lord Jesus on the wall, and she tried to keep her thoughts on the service. The icy cold of the stone floor made her legs stiff all the way up to her hips, and her knees ached. Finally, everything began to swirl around her because she was so tired. Then her father stood up. The service was over. The priest came forward to greet her father. While they talked, Kristen sat down on a step because she saw the altar boy do the same. He yawned, and that made her yawn, too. When he noticed that she was looking at him, he stuck his tongue in his cheek and crossed his eyes at her. Then he pulled out a pouch from under his clothing and dumped out the contents on the stone floor. Fish hooks, lumps of lead, leather straps, and a pair of dice. And the whole time he made faces at Kristen. She was quite astonished. Then the priests and Lovrens looked at the children. The priest laughed and told the boy that he should go off to school, but Lovrens frowned and took Kristen by the hand. It was starting to get lighter inside the church. 
Sleepily, Kristen clung to Lavren's hand while he and the priest walked under the wooden scaffold, talking about Bishop Ingild's construction work. They wandered through the entire church, and at last they came out into the vestibule. From there, a stone stairway led up into the west tower. Kristen trudged wearily up the stairs. The priest opened a door to a beautiful side chapel, but then Lavrens told Kristen to sit down outside on the steps and wait while he went in to make his confession. Afterward, she should come in to kiss the shrine of St. Thomas. At that moment, an old monk wearing an ash-brown cowl came out of the chapel. He paused for a minute, smiled at the child, and pulled out some sacking and homespun rags that had been stuffed into a hole in the wall. He spread them out on the landing. Sit down here, then you won't be so cold, he said, and continued on down the stairs in his bare feet. Kristen was asleep when Father Martine, as the priest was called, came out to get her. From the church rose the loveliest song, and inside the chapel candles burned on the altar. The priest gestured for Kristen to kneel beside her father, and then he took down a little golden reliquary that stood above the altar. He whispered to her that inside was a fragment of St. Thomas of Canterbury's bloody clothing, and he pointed to the holy image so that Kristen could press her lips to the feet. Lovely tones were still streaming from the church as they went downstairs. Father Martine told them that the organist was practicing while the schoolboys sang, but they had no time to listen, for Lavrence was hungry. He had fasted before confession. Now they would go over to the guest quarters at the canon's house to eat. Outside, the morning sun gleamed gold on the steep shores of distant Lake Miosa, so that all of the faded leafy groves looked like golden dust in the dark blue forests. The lake was rippled with little white specks of dancing foam. The wind blew cold and fresh, making the multicolored leaves float down onto the frost-covered hill. A group of horsemen appeared between the bishop's citadel and the house belonging to the Brothers of the Holy Cross. Lavrin stepped aside and bowed his head to his breast as he nearly swept the ground with his hat. Then Kristen realized that the horseman in the fur cape had to be the bishop himself, and she sank in a curtsy almost to the ground. The bishop reined in his horse and greeted them in return, beckoning Lavrens to approach, and he spoke with him for a moment. Then Lavrens came back to the priest and the child and said, I have been invited to dine at the bishop's citadel. Do you think, Father Martine, that one of the canon's servants could accompany this little maiden home to Shoemaker Fartine's house and tell my men that Halvdun should meet me here with Goldsvine at the hour of mid-afternoon prayers? The priest replied that this could easily be arranged. Then the barefoot monk who had spoken to Kristen in the tower stairway stepped forward and greeted them. There's a man over in your guesthouse who has business with the shoemaker anyway. He can take your message, Lovrens Bjorgelsen and then your daughter can either go with him or stay at the cloister until you return. I'll see to it that she's given food over there. Lawrence thanked him and said, It's a shame that you should be troubled with this child, Brother Edvin. Brother Edvin gathers up all the children he can, said Father Martine with a laugh. Then he has someone to preach to. Yes, I don't dare offer you learned gentlemen here in Hamar my sermons, said the monk, smiling and without taking offense. I'm only good at talking to children and farmers, but that's no reason to tie a muzzle on the ox that threshes. Kristen gave her father an imploring look. 
she thought that there was nothing she would like better than to go with Brother Edvin. So Lavrens thanked him, and as her father and the priest followed the bishop's entourage, Kristen put her hand in the monk's, and they walked down toward the monastery, which was a cluster of wooden houses and a light-colored stone church all the way down near the water. Brother Edvin gave her hand a little squeeze, and when they glanced at each other, they both had to laugh. The monk was tall and gaunt, but quite stoop-shouldered. The child thought he looked like an old crane, because his head was small with a narrow, shiny, smooth pate above a bushy white fringe of hair and perched on a long, thin, wrinkled neck. His nose was also as big and sharp as a beak, but there was something about him that made Kristen feel at ease and happy just by looking up into his long, furrowed face. His old, watery blue eyes were red-rimmed, and his eyelids were like brown membranes with thousands of wrinkles radiating from them. His hollow cheeks, with their reddish web of veins, were crisscrossed with wrinkles that ran down to his small, thin-lipped mouth. But it looked as if Brother Edvin had become so wrinkled simply from smiling at people. Kristen thought she had never seen anyone who looked so cheerful or so kind. He seemed to carry within him a luminous and secret joy, and she was able to share it whenever he spoke. They walked along the fence of an apple orchard where a few yellow and red fruits still hung on the trees. Two friars, wearing black and white robes, were raking withered beanstalks in the garden. The monastery was not much different from any other farm, and the guesthouse into which the monk escorted Kristen closely resembled a humble farmhouse, although there were many beds. In one of the beds lay an old man, and at the hearth sat a woman, wrapping an infant in swaddling clothes. Two older children, a boy and a girl, stood near her. They complained, both the man and the woman, because they had not yet received their lunch. But they don't want to bring food to us twice, so here we sit and starve while you run around in town, Brother Edvin. Don't be so angry, Steinolf, said the monk. Come over here, Kristen, and say hello. Look at this pretty maiden who is going to stay here today and eat with us. He told Kristen that Steinolf had fallen ill on his way home from a meeting, and he had been allowed to stay in the cloister's guesthouse instead of the hospice, because a kinswoman who was living at the hospice was so mean that he couldn't stand to be there. But I can tell they're getting tired of having me here, said the old man. When you leave, Brother Edvin, no one will have time to take care of me, and then they'll probably make me go back to the hospice. Oh, and you'll be well long gone before I'm done with my work at the church, said Brother Edvin. Then your son will come to get you. He took a kettle of hot water from the hearth and let Kristen hold it as he attended to Steinolf. Then the old man grew more tractable, and a moment later a monk came in, bringing food and drink for them. Brother Edvin said a prayer over the food and then sat down next to Steinolf on the edge of the bed so he could help the old man eat. Kristen sat down near the woman and fed the little boy, who was so small that he couldn't reach the porridge bowl and who spilled whenever he tried to dip into the bowl of ale. The woman was from Haidland and had come with her husband and children to visit her brother who was a monk at the cloister, but he was out wandering among the villages and she complained bitterly about having to sit there wasting time. Brother Edvin spoke gently to the woman. She must not say that she was throwing her time away when she was here in the bishop's hammar. Here were all the splendid churches, and all day long the monks and canons celebrated mass and chanted the offices of the day. 
and the town was so beautiful, even lovelier than Oslo itself, although it was somewhat smaller. But here, nearly every farm had a garden. You should have seen it when I arrived in the springtime, the monk said. The whole town was white with flowers, and since then the sweetbriar roses have bloomed. Well, what good does that do me? said the woman peevishly. And it seems to me that there are more holy places here than holiness. The monk chuckled and shook his head. Then he rummaged around in his straw pallet and pulled out a big pile of apples and pears, which he shared among the children. Kristen had never tasted such luscious fruit. The juice ran out of her mouth with every bite she took. Then Brother Edvin had to go off to church, and he said that Kristen could come along. They cut across the cloister courtyard, and through a little side door they entered the church's choir. Construction was still going on at this church, too, and scaffolding had been set up at the juncture of the nave and the transept. Brother Edvin told Kristen that Bishop Ingyald was having the choir renovated and decorated. The bishop was immensely wealthy, and he used all of his riches to adorn the churches of the town. He was an excellent bishop and a good man. The friars of Olav's cloister were also good men, celibate, learned, and humble. It was a poor monastery, but they had received Brother Edvin kindly. His home was at the Minorite cloister in Oslo, but he had been given permission to beg for alms here in the Hamar diocese. Come over here, he said, leading Kristen to the foot of the scaffolding. He climbed up a ladder and rearranged several planks high above. Then he went back down and helped the child to ascend. On the gray stone wall above her, Kristen saw strange, flickering specks of light, red as blood and yellow as ale, blue and brown and green. She wanted to look behind her, but the monk whispered, Don't turn around. When they stood together high up on the planks, he gently turned her around, and Kristen saw a sight so glorious that it almost took her breath away. Directly opposite her, on the south wall of the nave, stood a picture that glowed as if it had been made from nothing but glittering gemstones. The multicolored specks of light on the wall came from rays emanating from the picture itself. She and the monk were standing in the midst of its radiance. Her hands were red as if she had dipped them in wine. The monk's face seemed to be completely gilded and from his dark cowl the colors of the picture were dimly reflected. She gave him a questioning glance, but he merely nodded and smiled. It was like standing at a great distance and looking into heaven. Behind a lattice of black lines she began to distinguish, little by little, the Lord Jesus himself, wearing the costliest red cloak, the Virgin Mary in robes as blue as the sky, and the holy men and maidens in gleaming yellow and green and violet attire. They stood beneath the arches and pillars of illuminated houses, surrounded by intertwining branches and twigs with extraordinary bright leaves. The monk pulled her a little farther out toward the edge of the scaffold. Stand here, he whispered. Then the light will fall on you from Christ's own cloak. From the church below, the faint smell of incense and the odor of cold stone drifted up toward them. It was gloomy down below, but rays of sunlight were entering diagonally through a series of windows on the south wall of the nave. Kristen began to see that the heavenly picture must be some sort of window pane, for it filled that type of opening in the wall. 
the others were empty or closed off with panes of horn in wooden frames. A bird appeared, perched on the windowsill, chirped briefly, and then flew away. Outside the wall of the choir, the sound of metal on stone could be heard. Otherwise, everything was quiet. Only the wind came in small gusts, sighed a little between the church walls, and then died away. Well, well, said Brother Edvin with a sigh. No one can make things like this in Norway. They may paint with glass and nidros, but not like this. But in the lands to the south, Kristen, in the great cathedrals, there they have picture paints as big as the portals of this church. Kristen thought about the pictures in the church back home. The altars of St. Olav and St. Thomas of Canterbury had paintings on the front panels and the tabernacles behind, but those pictures seemed dull to her and without radiance as she thought about them now. They climbed down the ladder and went up into the choir. There stood the altar, naked and bare, and on its stone top were stacked up small boxes and cups made of metal and wood and ceramic. Odd little knives, pieces of iron, and pens and brushes lay next to them. Then Brother Edvin told Kristen that these were his tools. He was skilled in the craft of painting pictures and carving tabernacles, and he had made the exquisite paintings that stood nearby on the choir chairs. They were intended for the front panels of the altars here in the friar's church. Kristen was allowed to watch as he mixed colored powders and stirred them in the little ceramic cups, and she helped him carry the things over to a bench next to the wall. As the monk went from one painting to the next, sketching fine red lines in the fine hair of the holy men and women so curls and waves were made visible, Kristen followed close on his heels, watching him and asking questions, and the monk explained what he had painted. In one of the paintings Christ sat on a golden chair, and St. Nicholas and St. Clement stood near him under a canopy. On either side was depicted the life of St. Nicholas. In one place he was an infant sitting on his mother's knee. He had turned away from the breast she offered him, for he was so holy, even in his cradle, that he refused to nurse more than once on Fridays. Next to this was a picture of him placing the money bags at the door of the house where three maidens lived who were so poor that they couldn't find husbands. Kristen saw how he cured the child of the Roman knight, and she saw the knight sail off in a boat with a false golden chalice in his hands. The knight had promised the holy bishop a golden chalice, which had been in his family for a thousand years, as payment for returning the child to good health. But then he had tried to betray St. Nicholas by giving him a false golden chalice instead. That's why the boy fell into the sea with the real golden chalice in his hand. But St. Nicholas carried the child unharmed beneath the water, and he emerged onto the shore as his father stood in St. Nicholas's church, offering the false goblet. All of this was shown in the picture, painted with gold and the most beautiful of colors. In another painting, the Virgin Mary sat with the Christ child on her knee. He had put one hand up under his mother's chin, and he was holding an apple in the other. With them stood St. Suniva and St. Christina. They were leaning gracefully from the hips, their faces a lovely pink and white, and they had golden hair and wore golden crowns. Brother Edvin gripped his right wrist with his left hand as he painted leaves and roses in their crowns. It seems to me that the dragon is awfully small, said Kristen, looking at the image of the saint who was her namesake. It doesn't look as if it could swallow up the maiden, 
And it couldn't either, said Brother Edwin. It was no bigger than that. Dragons and all other creatures that serve the devil only seem as big as long as we harbor fear within ourselves. But if a person seeks God with such earnestness and desire that he enters into his power, then the power of the devil at once suffers such a great defeat that his instruments become small and impotent. Dragons and evil spirits shrink until they are no bigger than goblins and cats and crows. As you can see, the whole mountain that St. Suniva was trapped inside is so small that it will fit on the skirt of her cloak. But weren't they inside the caves? asked Kristen. St. Suniva and the Selya men? Isn't that true? The monk squinted at her and smiled again. It's both true and not true. It seemed to be true for the people who found the holy bodies, and it seemed true to Suniva and the Selya men, because they were humble and believed that the world is stronger than all sinful people. They did not imagine that they might be stronger than the world because they did not love it. But if they had only known, they could have taken all the mountains and flung them out into the sea like tiny pebbles. No one and nothing can harm us, child, except what we fear and love. But what if a person doesn't fear and love God? asked Kristen in horror. The monk put his hand on her golden hair, gently tilted her head back and looked into her face. His eyes were blue and open wide. There is no one, Kristen, who does not love and fear God. But it's because our hearts are divided between love for God and fear of the devil, and love for this world and this flesh, that we are miserable in life and death. For if a man knew no yearning for God and God's being, then he would thrive in hell, and we alone would not understand that he had found his heart's desire. Then the fire would not burn him if he did not long for coolness, and he would not feel the pain of the serpent's bite if he did not long for peace. Kristen looked up into his face. She understood nothing of what he said. Brother Edvin continued, It was because of God's mercy toward us that he saw how our hearts were split, and he came down to live among us in order to taste, in fleshly form, the temptations of the devil when he entices us with power and glory, and the menace of the world when it offers us blows and contempt and the wounds of sharp nails in our hands and feet. In this manner, he showed us the way and allowed us to see his love. The monk looked down into the child's strained and somber face. Then he laughed a little and said in an entirely different tone of voice, Do you know who was the first one to realize that our Lord had allowed himself to be born? It was the rooster. He saw the star, and then he said, and all the animals could speak Latin back then, he cried, Christus natus est! Brother Edvin crowed out the last words sounding so much like a rooster that Kristen ended up howling with laughter. And it felt so good to laugh because all the strange things that he had just been talking about had settled upon her like a burden of solemnity. The monk laughed too. It's true. Then when the ox heard about it, he began to bellow, Ooby, Ooby, Ooby. But then the goat bleated and said, Bedlam, Bedlam, Bedlam. 
and the sheep was so filled with longing to see Our Lady and her son that he bade at once, Amos! Amos! And the newborn calf lying in the straw got up and stood on his own legs. Volo, 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 he said. Haven't you heard this before? No, I should have known. I realize that he's a clever priest, that Sarah Irak who lives up with you, and well-educated. But he probably doesn't know about this, because it's not something you learn unless you journey to Paris. Have you been to Paris, then? asked the child. God bless you, little Kristen. I've been to Paris and traveled elsewhere in the world as well, and yet you mustn't think me any better for it, because I fear the devil and love and desire this world like a fool. But I hold on to the cross with all my strength. One must cling to it like a kitten hanging on to a plank when it falls into the sea. And what about you, Kristen? How would you like to offer up those lovely curls of yours and serve Our Lady like these brides that I've painted here? There are no other children at home besides me, replied Kristen, so I will probably marry, I would think. Mother has already filled chests and trunks with my dowry. Yes, I see, said Brother Edvin, stroking her forehead. That's the way folk dispatch their children these days. To God they give the daughters that are lame and blind and ugly and infirm. Or if they think he has given them too many children, they let him take some of them back. And yet they wonder why the men and maidens who live in the cloisters are not all holy people. Brother Edvin took Kristen into the sacristy and showed her the monastery's books, which were displayed on stands. They contained the most beautiful pictures. But when one of the monks came in, Brother Edvin said he was merely looking for a donkey's head to copy. Afterward, he shook his head at himself. There, you see my fear, Kristen. But they're so nervous about their books here in this house. If I had the proper faith in love, I wouldn't stand here and lie to Brother Azulv. But then I could just well take those old leather gloves and hang them up on that ray of sunshine over there. Kristen went with the monk over to the guest house and had something to eat. But otherwise, she sat in the church all day long, watching him work and talking to him. And not until Lovrens came back to get Kristen did either she or the monk remember the message that should have been sent to the shoemaker. Kristen remembered those days she spent in Hamar better than anything else she experienced on that long journey. Oslo was no doubt larger than Hamar, but since she had already seen a town, it did not seem so extraordinary to her. Nor did she think Skog was as beautiful as Jorengard, even though the buildings were finer. She was glad she wasn't going to live there. The manor was set on a hill, and below lay Boten Fjord, grey and melancholy with black forests while on the opposite shore and beyond the buildings the sky reached all the way down to the tops of the trees. There were no towering or steep mountainsides like those back home to lift the sky high overhead, or to soften and frame the view so that the world was neither too big nor too small. The journey home was cold. It was almost advent, and when they had traveled a short distance into the valley, they came upon snow. They had to borrow sleighs and ride for most of the way. The exchange of estates was handled in such a manner that Lovrens turned over Skog to his brother Osmond, but retained the right of repurchase for himself and his descendants. <laughs>